Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. Yes, good evening. It's 7pm on a Wednesday night, which means we're back in the studio once more for River Radio's resident football show. Remember, if you want to, you can have your say on any of tonight's topics by tweeting us at River Radio Live. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so do feel free to drop us a line. Now, it's been a month since I was last in the studio, but the two men in front of me are, in fact, first-team regulars, Ben Green and Will Taylor. A warm welcome to both of you. Will, as football fans, there are a few things that we love more than transfers, of course. The January transfer window is scarcely as exciting as the summer, but nonetheless, did we see a fair bit of movement at the, the Torquay end? Was there ins? Were there outs? You know, I didn't see, Sky Sports didn't send a reporter, so I'm not quite up to speed. Oh, there is. Did you not catch it? You must have missed that one. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm, yeah. Must have done. <laughs> um, very few ins and outs. Um, and when I say very few, there, there were none, obviously, because it's the National League. Um, very interestingly, not many people know this, you know, the National League transfer window runs all season long. So there's no actual window for us, but the the only time it's the only relevance it has is it's the time you can get players from football league clubs like on loan and stuff like that. So it's always the transfer window for us. There's always the excitement of it, which is the beauty of it. But it's uh, no, there, there wasn't there wasn't too much going on. We haven't had, we didn't have a game last Saturday over. I'm convinced Gary Johnson's on holiday. If I had to guess, like, that would be my guess. <laughs> he's in Dubai. He is. Yeah, he's, stuck he's his standing seat up, it. Yeah. That's allegedly because from what I can deduce, you don't actually know, do you? And we have to be. Factually, no, right down the line. Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, he he might be comforting his son as well. Obviously, Lee Johnson no longer the Sunderland manager either, so he could he could be you know taking a bit of family time. Indeed, be... there's been plenty of news and plenty of managerial moves as well. We'll get into all of those. Ben, meanwhile, there were a couple of deadline day signings for Wickham, but the big news that's come out today is, of course, the retirement of club stalwart Matt Bloomfield. Just just give us some words on him because he's been a tremendous servant to the club, been with them since 2003, 18 years. Yeah, I mean, firstly, good to see you again, Ed. The king is back, I have to say. Well, right, cheers, Ben. I did say, I did say hello when I first got here. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Matt, Matt Bloomfield, what, what, what can you say about him? He, he's been at Wickham almost as long as I've been alive, wow. uh, which is a crazy stat. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's scored in every season he's played in. He's made over 500, I think it's 550 appearances for the club. Um, he really will go down as a Wickham legend now, not just because of his performances on the pitch, but because of the longevity, how long he's been captain, uh, the promotion seasons he's been involved in. Um, and I'm really glad for him that he got that moment uh, at Wembley in 2019 or 20, oh God, it was that long ago now, yeah, it was, 20, yeah. 2020, yeah. Uh, where he got to lift the trophy 
yeah, there was no fans there, but I, I felt like that was a, a crowning moment of his career. And I know it's, he's probably a bit upset at the moment that he's had to retire, but like, he's, he's had a great career and I'm sure he can retire pretty satisfied with what he's done. Absolutely. I mean, it's a strange one, isn't it? He's retired on, on medical grounds, which came after a concussion he sustained this season, we might add. I mean, he's 38 now. He's a good friend and was, in fact, the roommate of Gareth Ainsworth when Ainsworth was playing. He's now part of the coaching staff as well. Ainsworth brought him into that setup. Before retiring today, he was the longest serving player for any club in the top four leagues in oh, English football wow. after his move from Ipswich Town, which, as I say, came in 2003. In that time, he's had four promotions and four relegations. He's genuinely been with the club through thick and thin. I mean, it's a tremendous uh, amount of service he has given to Wickham Wanderers, and we wish him all the very best in his future career. Incidentally, the club will pay tribute to him with a special celebration of his playing career at Adams Park on Good Friday, which is April the 15th, when Wickham entertain at Plymouth Argyle. Well, having introduced our panel, it's time to get on with the show, and we will start with Maidenhead, who continued their fine form with a draw at promotion chasing Wrexham on Saturday. Sean Mikulski netted a last gasp equaliser for the Magpies after the home side had Paul Mullins sent off within the first five minutes. The result means that the part-timers' recent record stands at just one loss in their last six games, five of which have been against top six sides. But assistant manager Ryan Peters believes despite a positive result on the day, the team could have offered more. Mainhead United's assistant manager there, Ryan Peters, chatting to Grace Scott of the Magpies media team at what sounded like a very windswept race course <laughs> ground. Uh, Will, we'll start with yourself. How much confidence can the team take from their recent form? Because before this little run, they'd lost six of their last seven games. And then when you see a pocket of fixtures on the horizon whereby you're going to be playing five teams in the hunt for promotion, 
it's the last thing you need. And yet they've been absolutely fantastic over this period. They've been unbelievable, haven't they? Almost unplayable in terms of the team, like, you know, the, the quality of the teams they're facing compared to, you know, with no disrespect, the, the team that they are. I mean, I, th- I think I, I might have been sat here with yourself or Ben, the first the first show of, of the new year we did in January. We were looking at that form from before. Obviously, they had quite a few games called off and you were just wondering in this relegation scrap that seems to have sort of f- fell off the boil a little bit now, where the points were going to come from. Well, Alan Devonshire and Ryan Peters have, have put a hell of an answer forward for that with the results they were getting. Wrexham are, are a funny team this year in the sense that they they probably should be doing a little bit better than they are with the resources they've got. But let's not take anything away from Maidenhead and, and just how, how much character it takes. Because it's never easy to, to play against 10 men for 85 minutes. It's The last 20 minutes yet can be a boost, but they're obviously going to adapt and, and you know sort of overcome it. And, and that's certainly what happened, certainly by what Ryan Peters said, how, how it came across. So I, I think that the spirit to come back late and, and win it as they did and... and the, the recent form it's, it's just it's indescribable almost but to get the results they have and it, it just sort of encapsulates everything that that Maidenhead are about probably as a football club generally they, they seem to do this year upon year upon year well we heard from Ryan Peters didn't we last week mm. and and I think that the thing that really stuck out for me in that interview that he gave was where he said that Alan Devonshire had left some money in the budget and always does to, to give the squad a, a refresh and we talked a lot about the difficulty as a part-time club that they will have in finding players who can perform at this level week in week out but do you sense they're starting to get that chemistry right because there were some notable departures at the end of last season and the first half of this campaign they did struggle look I mean like I've said this before on the show the turnaround for this season was shorter than it's ever been and that is never going to suit a team like Maidenhead who who pick up players um, who maybe keep their options open for a little bit longer you know the the very best players in the division are going to be snapped up early and and the sort of team that Maidenhead and, and pretty much probably like sort of 60% of the teams are in the National League will pick up scraps from, from sides that from players that haven't necessarily been able to pick up players for, you know pick up those top quality sides to an extent I, I, I can't I don't want to say, like it's going to sound bullish what we're about to say but you've got to bear with me I, I, I'm not saying Alan Devonshire unpopular opinions at exactly. the end exactly I know, I know <laughs> you do know that don't you I, Alan Devonshire didn't get it right this summer that's all I will say and that's, that's not com- it's not completely his fault but the signings just didn't work as he as he would have liked and it's, it's down to down to a few few uh, things like I mentioned I don't think the turnaround was big enough I don't necessarily think he had enough time to to have a look at the players exactly as he would have wanted and, and maybe made a few rushed decisions because of that now he's had enough time and, and it's, it's, it's a sort of encapsulates the sort of manager he is to keep the money back for these new players watching them like I did at the Chesterfield game it was like a completely different team than I'd seen earlier in the season and that's exactly what Alan Devonshire does and it's like those first three or four months of the season were almost like his pre-season if that makes sense sort of building that squad and, and working out what worked and what didn't and it, it's just sort of all, all come together really nicely and I, I sort of think it's, it's just exactly what Maidenhead are about and they, they, they will do this year upon year upon year and we spoke earlier in the year about potentially being worried about relegation they've proved us completely wrong with that and I, I think that's sort of um, you know that's fair play to them Their focus right now I'm sure will squarely be on keeping this run going and ensuring they do stay or steer clear of, of any kind of relegation chat and talk in the coming weeks in the season but you're getting an impression now, you know, Josh Kelly's suddenly firing and, you know, the new goalkeepers come in on loan from Peterborough and there's been a real breath of fresh air between mm. the sticks. The kind of confidence they'll be getting from a run like this, as opposed to the odd result where they picked up, you know, I think they got a good a good result against Bromley and we said, you know, this could really slingshot them into some more positive results and all of a sudden they lost again. Do you think actually going toe-to-toe with four or five teams in what's been a really difficult run, all of those teams looking at potentially trying to get themselves into league football 
And as I say, coming out of it with so many points, do you think something is maybe getting to a point whereby they can they can really start to, to build the club for next season? Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always a strange one, isn't it, with, with them? Because, you know, with, with the greatest will in the world, they're one of very few part-time teams in that league. And that will always play its part. Look, they're... they're with the, with the no disrespect at all, they're a selling club at that at that level. It's what keeps the club going. We've seen it work with so many different teams. You look at Exeter, for example. They they've sold so many incredible players higher up the league, and that's what their club is based off. And and it's, it will be exactly the same where they can help a player like Josh Kelly accelerate to the next level, potentially get a fee for him, and that's what it will be. My only worry about in terms, of, I don't don't get me wrong. I think they can build something to become a genuinely even more of a solid national league team than they are now. I could genuinely see that happening, but I just don't know if they've got that extra little bit in them in terms of the infrastructure and and the ways and means of doing things to, to sort of necessarily push for the promotion places. I know they're going toe-to-toe with these teams and that's that sums up the, the excellent work that's being done there. But in reality, if they are around there, that's when players start getting poached and the National League genuinely has never been stronger than it is. There, there are 10, 11 teams this year that could go up. Genuinely, there is. It's it's such a dogfight and, and teams like Maidenhead, um, they're, they're doing incredibly well to not fall by the wayside. I mean, you look at that bottom three at the minute, you've got sort of Weldstone, Dover, Kingsland. They're three teams that arguably aren't the biggest national league sides and they've been completely completely cut cut adrift from it as, as a result Weymouth as well to an extent so just staying in that sort of pack of solid genuine national league clubs I think is a great place for Maidenhead to be in. How much credit do you think they deserve for crowbarring themselves out of that bad run and also away from that relegation zone because when the season doesn't start well I mean I spoke to Alan Massey right at the start of the season and he said to me look we're looking to do the same again and what they had done the previous season mm. was to finish very very comfortably mid-table that must have come as a, as a bit of a shock Yeah I, I, th- I think that's the uh, it all goes down to back to the management team which which we seem to talk about a lot but I, th- I think that's where it lies and I think the leadership team within the squad is, is really strong as well and I think that, that plays such a huge, huge part Wilder Haviland seems to just lead from the front every single time I watch them he's, he's so, so so solid um, you know sort of every single game week in week out they've got some really really experienced players at that level as well you've got Nathan Blissett Dan Sparks some really really solid players who, who are only going to improve them and make them better so it's a bit of a tough one but in that early stage I think there would have been genuine worries that you know maybe we would, they'd done so well to get where they got all good things must come to an end that, that that must have been the sort of thought process but like you said to crowbar themselves out of it is is just is nothing, nothing short of incredible really and it, I think what makes it even more incredible is the manner they've done it in against the teams they've done it against so it, it's it's a re- it's no mean feat and it's it sums up the, the character of the club and, and everything that's there behind it um, but no they're, they're 100% there as a, as a solid National League club now I'd, I'd struggle to I think someone would struggle to find an argument against that now if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, and, and lastly, we heard it mentioned there lastly in the interview and it, and it seems remiss of me to, to not bring it up here. Mm. You know, Grace Scott pointed it out, 46 travelling fans going all the way to Wrexham <laughs> to support your team and, and getting that result. You know, Ryan Peters said it, well, we're so grateful for the support. Maidenhead, when I went down there right at the start of the season, I mean, I've gone to a lot of football clubs and I have to say, and I don't know whether you felt like this as well, but 
so many different clubs will say, oh, we're a real family club, to the point it's almost quite a fashionable strap line, but yeah. you don't really get that feeling or impression. Genuinely, I have to say, it really did feel like that. And I think, in a sense, they almost seem to enjoy the fact they're, they're arguably punching mm. above their weight infrastructurally. Do you get that impression? And is yeah. that what the league is really about? That's I, I, I generally think they're like, like exactly bang on the money. They, they encapsulate everything that non-league football is about, especially at the top level, because they're a, they're a local club. They're, they're not the biggest club in the world, and, and they won't be and I think that you look at the teams around them you've got Reading and, and Wickham to an, ex- to an extent in terms of ge- geographically you've, London's not that far away for team, for, to go and support those sort of teams it's, it's not going to be the easiest place to draw fans into but yet the, there is such a good core fan base there that it's just it's just it blows my mind sometimes being down there like the support they had against Chesterfield they were out singing a traveling 900 900 odd Chesterfield fans it, it felt like it was there it was it was ludicrous and it's 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 things like that I mean it's little things like going into the ground and they, they've got the magpies bar behind the stand which is just great and there's like a little sort of cabin which is which is sort of like the corporate area which is just brilliant to sit in but there's no separation I think that's a big thing at a lot of clubs that, that deem themselves big clubs is they, they distance the sort of corporate area from the fans and I I felt like I could have walked up to, to the sort of board members at Maidenhead shook their hand and started having a conversation and that, that's that's just how the club is and that's how the club's run and, and for me that's exactly where and how you want to be doing things certainly certainly at this level so they're, they're absolutely what non-league football is all about but don't you know don't get me wrong they 100% deserve to be where they are and in a few years if they carry on building as they are who knows what could happen well, as Alan Devonshire's men continue to defy the odds in the National League, it's time to turn our attention to a team chasing promotion to the Championship. Wigan Wanderers reached English football second tier 18 months ago, only to be relegated by a single point. Now looking for an instant return, Gareth Ainsworth side sit fifth in League One, but have had their momentum stifled by back-to-back losses. I caught up with Bucks Free Press reporter James Richings and started by asking how the team would respond following their latest loss to MK Dons. Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. Well, unfortunately, due to a technical error, we will play that interview as soon as we can grab it. In the interim, Ben, you're a a Wickham fan. Uh, Which of those last two results have been more disappointing in your opinion? Because obviously there's been the loss away to Morecambe, um, which perhaps from the Shrimpers' perspective, was a bit of revenge for that tremendous win Wickham got in the 94th minute, thanks to Curtis Thompson, or, or the one to, to MK Dons, obviously a, a playoff rival. It's actually a very hard question, Ed. I, losing to Morecambe was incredibly frustrating because of the run Wickham had been on before that. They just got that great result against Oxford. You think, wow, OK, they could beat Morecambe, they beat MK. We're looking at four or five wins on the bounce. So that was incredibly frustrating. However... Losing to MK Dons in the manner that we did, looking like there was never really any goal threat for the entirety of the game. Um, MK Dons didn't really have to get out of second gear. And it almost felt like after that first goal, you, the, the result was inevitable. So I'd say the MK Dons one was more disappointing for me because to go from the Oxford game where the mood around the stadium was so, so good and it really felt like we were building something to the MK Dons game where... The atmosphere was terribly flat and it almost felt like we were dropping out of the playoffs. Um, I, I'm not really sure what happened in the space of two weeks, to be honest with you, but I, I'd say the MK Dons one 100% was, was a worst defeat. The thing about the MK Dons one 
as well and and why perhaps we need to you know kind of examine that in slightly more detail I know that you're not meant to do it as a football fan because every single game is different but certainly as a person who supports a team that have been in and around the playoffs my side's Crystal Palace I think we've been up into the Premier League through the playoffs more than any other club um it's one of those where if you've played somebody in the playoffs and you then lose you start to look ahead to if you might face them when you get to the playoffs and at the moment you know it's it's not gone great for Wickham at at MK and what is kind of regarded as a a very loose Buckinghamshire derby and you two are fourth and fifth if the league were to end tomorrow that's who you'd you'd play is there a slight element of, of concern that you did struggle against a side you may well face when it really matters yeah, not only Milton Keynes Dons, but the other teams in the top six, Ed. You know, we, we've struggled all season against the best teams, apart from the Sunderland game where we got the point and, and Oxford a couple of weeks ago. Um, we drew, we were lucky to get a point against Wigan. We drew at Oxford in the away fixture. We lost to Milton Keynes in the home, in the away fixture there. Uh, Rotherham, we were lucky to get a point. Sunderland, we got soundly beaten away. So if you actually look at the top you know, six or seven teams, we have actually struggled to pick up wins. So going into those playoffs, so we do end up in that, you know, fourth to sixth place. Neither, I don't want to play either one of those teams, any of them. There's not a single team in there that I'd be fully comf- confident that we could beat. Now on a day we can, but I wouldn't be necessarily backing us to do so over two legs. The playoffs is a really interesting one as well, isn't it? Because I mean, I recall when Wickham first went up into the championship, obviously that was during COVID time, so there weren't fans and things, but you beat Portsmouth, um, of course, who were then under a Kenny Jacket, who was very much under pressure to get that team promoted, didn't and has now obviously departed Portsmouth. But similarly, you then went and beat Oxford as well. And for large swaths of that game, perhaps it was a Wickham performance with which I was less familiar at the time. But Oxford looked to be kind of all over you for large portions of that of that game. So is it one of those ones where you look back and think, well, to be fair, the odds were stacked against us then, um, you know, so perhaps there's there's a little bit more in it. Or is it a cause, as you say, for, for genuine concern? Because it seems to be that Wickham are up there based upon their very, very consistent form against teams they should beat. Yeah, th- those playoffs back in you know, the couple of seasons ago, I was a bit worried for both of the games because... I mean, I, th- I believe it was Fleetwood we actually played in the semi-final and we just lost them at home 1-0 uh, a couple of months before the season was curtailed. So I was very concerned about playing them. And like you said, with Oxford, we lost to them as well in the, at the Kassam. So going into that playoff final or the semi-final, I wasn't necessarily confident. But, you know, there's this thing about Wickham that when the back's against the wall, they do turn up. And so if we were to go into those playoffs and we say, like you said, we, we have MK Dons in the semi-final, even though I don't think we will get a result, it, it would be the most Wickham thing ever to get a result and to soundly beat MK 4 or 5 on aggregate. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that's classic Wickham. So I, I could never write us off considering the track record we have. Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? We do now have the audio from our interview with James Richings. He's the Bucks Free Press reporter on Wickham Wanderers and he started by telling me, as I said, about the latest loss to MK Dons and what he thought the team's reaction would be.
clearly there we have it then Wickham he said they're the most exciting time to be a fan of the club I mean you know that's that's quite a bold that's quite a bold statement isn't it and uh, as I say James Richings there the Wickham reporter for the uh, Bucks Free Press Ooh, I think that's uh, that's me listening to me on uh, on the app there. Mate, there's so, arrogance and then there's that. I and think, I tell you, know. you I t- which, I've got nothing. I've, got, I've genuinely got nothing. A fair play, fair play. But that goes down to recorded listen as well, which is good because if it's over three seconds, that's the figures have gone through the roof. Okay, so that's having yeah. getting so high. Um, Right, we'll quickly we'll quickly rack up the uh, the the Wickham chat. Obviously, quickly Ben, yeah. we did mention uh, picked up a couple of players on on deadline day. Lewis Wing being one of them. Mm-hmm. He came in uh, on a permanent transfer from Middlesbrough, and similarly Jack Young f- on loan from Newcastle. Are you excited to see them put on Wickham shirts? Is is it nice to get a couple of midfielders in, particularly because of the injury issues that have been had? Yeah, I mean, I was desperate for us to bring some players in. I, I remember sending <laughs> Will a very angry message uh, before the Lewis Wing to was see announced. if he was available. Yeah. yeah, one to see if he was available, and two, I, I said. <laughs> that Wickham were the only team in League One that hadn't signed a player in the January transfer window up to that point. I just felt, wow, for a team chasing promotion, you know, I was expecting two or three. Um, but no, Lewis Wing is a very talented midfielder. I know you'll get Sheffield Wednesday fans. I know you'll get Rotherham fans say, oh, he's no good. He's rubbish. Look, he did really well at Middlesbrough. And for half a season at Rotherham, he was very good. So I think that Ainsworth can get the best out of him. Aside with Jack Young... I'm not sure we're going to see too much of him. I think he's going to be one of those development style players mm. that's coming to the club to get some experience. I think that's more what's going on there. Being in and around the first. Yeah, yeah, to get some first experience. But with Lewis Wing, no, I can see him slotting right in, you know, next to Josh Scowen or Curtis Thompson. Having someone with the technical ability that he does could drive us up the division. Well, we certainly wish Gareth Ainsworth and his team the very best of luck as they take on Shrewsbury on Tuesday night. Over in Reading, however, fortunes continue to be mixed. Kelly Chambers' women's side progressed through to the FA Cup fifth round following their late win over fellow WSL team Brighton. Justine Vey-Hiver-May, that was a, a tricky pronunciation, <laughs> but I think I just about styled it Nailed out. Deanne Rose and Tia Prima got the goals at, Bru- at the uh, Broadfield Stadium and the Royals will now face West Ham United. On the men's side of things, however, it just goes from bad to worse. Belko Paunovic's team lost 4-0 at QPR. They were 3-0 down at half-time, despite mustering a total of 18 shots on goal during the 90 minutes. Only three were on target. The result means they stay 21st in the league, two points above the relegation zone, but have now lost their last five league games, conceding 19 goals in the process. It's the worst run in the championship. Gents, look, we all support clubs that have been tangled up in, in relegation struggles over the years. It's one of those things, isn't it? There are times where, it, where you're down at the bottom, it just feels like nothing will, will go for you. Uh, I, if I had a if I had a pound for every time I'd been in that situation as a Torquay fan, I'd be a very very rich man. But it's it's exactly that, isn't it? It's just it's it's one of those. It's frustrating to watch as well because sometimes you can tell the players on the pitch, and I don't know whether Reading fans exactly will feel this, but you know they're giving it everything they can possibly give, and sometimes it just doesn't happen for you. I think you look at that Fulham game. Obviously, it was an absolute chancing in the end. Andy Carroll scoring two of the best goals you'll ever see for for them both to be chalked offside. I mean, especially that volley that was silly, wasn't it? And 
I, I think it's just one of those situations where you just have to sort of grit your teeth and bear it and hope that eventually it will come good and, and some good will happen. In these sort of situations, it can often just be one result that turns it round. And look, don't get it's not like Reading are done for. Let's let's get it right. You know, they're they're, they're in it. Don't get me wrong, they're in a relegation battle. But they they if they pick up a few results, I think I think they'll be okay. And it's worth just trying to stay as positive as you can from from experience anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's a real contrast, though, isn't it, as well? Because after what was a very, very, very slow start to the, the season, the women's side are, are absolutely flying since Aston Villa in October. I mean, they've, they've not looked back at all, have they? That contrast, and, and it's one of those where, you know, Reading women are actually in the top division. They're in the WSL and are really, really mixing it. I mean, it's a strange one because the WSL has got the, the fiscal issues that you might argue the Premier League has, where clubs have got, have got more money. But it, it does feel like a sort of a strange dichotomy between those two sides at the moment. Yeah, well, I was just looking at Reading women's results over the last sort of 10, 11 games. Only one defeat mm. in, the, in the last 10, which is incredible. And the rest are all, all wins, you know, not seeing four or five draws. You know, they've picked up an incredible amount of points in, in recent times. So yeah, it couldn't be any different at the moment, I'm afraid <laughs> to say, for Reading fans between their women's side and, and, and the men's team. Yeah, and you've got to ask, haven't you, you know, because the women's team will obviously be almost intravenously linked with the men's team as well. If the men's team suffer fiscally by going down, then, you know, would that affect the women's team as well? Which would be such a shame if it did because you know they're one of the real shining lights and the really exciting teams I think to be in that WSL and, and kind of um, mixing it up with those with those bigger teams the likes of you know kind of Chelsea and Arsenal yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly that, isn't it? I mean, and I, I remember I was, I was speaking to Jesse um, just just last week, and it was interesting how they said it was. Uh, it, it was don't don't get too ahead of yourselves. Like you said, that gap is is huge, but they are very much rubbing shoulders with these teams. I think the FA Cup represents a great opportunity for Reading's women's team to to get their hands on some silverware and and put their stamp on that division as a whole. I know it's a different cup competition, but I really think it would be a massive statement to go and win that competition. Especially, I mean, you you, you were at the final the year, last year or the year before I was at the final this year yeah, this for year, last yeah. for last yeah. year's competition yes yeah. Chelsea against Arsenal and and you said how how incredible Chelsea were I mean they, they were supposed to be two of the best teams and and you said Chelsea just completely blew them away in that in that scenario absolutely battered them yeah and and that's what I mean so if, if Reading can go and, and generally sort of win this competition and, and fifth round it's you're not that far from the final really do you know what I mean? it's two the three or four games from from really sort of you know, sort of mixing with that elite, and I think that, that it's a few results away. It's a results-driven business. You can have all the money in the world, but if results don't go your way, they don't. They don't go your way. I mean, Reading have had some, some, you know, claimed some good scouts this season. For me, as an outsider, I don't see any reason they string a few more results together. One, one defeat in the last set. Why can't they slip into that third spot? Well, we'll uh, have to have to wait and see, of course. But uh, the women's side will continue their season with a trip to Everton on Sunday. The men's side aren't in action until Wednesday the 9th when they travel to Bristol City. Up next for us, meanwhile, it's time to widen our gaze beyond the Thames Valley and chat transfers in Hot Topic. Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. Welcome back. You're listening to Extra Time Live on River Radio. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can by tweeting at River Radio Live or send an email to studio at river.radio. And with the January transfer window having passed or closed on Monday, we thought we'd use this week's hot topic to reflect on what was a very interesting period. Now, there were plenty of Premier League 
signings, plenty of activity. Everton made the most signings. Six came through the door at Goodison Park. There was also a Premier League return for former Liverpool man Felipe Coutinho as he linked up with teammate and now Aston Villa manager Stephen Gerrard. Lots to discuss then and we start with Will who chatted to Kieran Stewart from the Transfer Exchange Show and started out by asking him what he thought the teams had done best in the window.
I do apologise. We seem to have some some technical issues with that interview, which is a real pity because it was very, very extensive. However, we will do our best to go through as many clubs as we can. Gents, we'll almost go in, in alphabetical order here to to an extent and get through as many clubs as quickly as we can. It's almost like a 60-second buzz around with this. <laughs> Arsenal, of course, today, it's been confirmed, have effectively let uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang go on a free transfer. Word association here. Good move, bad move. What do you think? I'm going to say good move for Aubameyang, good move for Arsenal, but terrible window for Arsenal. I'm just <laughs> do, you gonna... think, do you think it's a terrible window for Arsenal? Who have they brought in? Well, this is, see, I understand this is that argument. No, I do understand that argument, right? But my argument with it for Arsenal is that arguably their biggest problem since Wenger left, which I know we touched on with your unpopular mm. opinion a few weeks ago, Ben, is the Deadwood. And the Deadwood, they've got rid of this window. The money they freed up in that wage bill is invaluable. Getting rid of Callum Chambers, who would have been on a fair wedge. Kalazanac, who, who hasn't, feels like he hasn't played for about five years for Arsenal. You know, things like that, I, th- I think that's worth its weight in gold for them. And I, I know right now it might represent some issues, but I mean, they got Lacazette. I think they, the, the thing is, they have that sort of fluid forward line, don't they, where they, they don't necessarily play an out-and-out striker a lot of the time. They can play with number 10s, and there's, there's some really good young attacking talent there that I think, you know, that I think, I think they'll be okay. I don't think it's a necessarily an awful window for them. I think the interesting thing with that one is you've got to ask yourself what are Arsenal's goals this season yeah, probably yeah. to get into the top four does losing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang harm those goals probably not mm. to be perfectly honest with you yeah. because he's not been in the form that secured him that enormous contract after which the form really did tail off now a club I'm very keen to talk about <laughs> Aston Villa Felipe Coutinho Luca Dean Robin Olsen comes in on loan as cover for the goalkeepers and Callum Chambers for free for me that's a great window about as good. Sorry, go well, on, I was going to say we've just gone from Arsenal, who I don't think have had a great window. <laughs> I think Aston Villa have had the best window out of anyone. Mm. I know, think it's some fantastic. of those signings are incredible. Luca Dean, you know, a brilliant See, left back for the level. I think that's almost a standout for me. I know Coutinho yeah. is the, the arguably the big name, but Dean is such a good signing now, for them. To be clear, Luca Dean has replaced effectively Matt Target <laughs> now. <laughs> For me, those Matt Target is a Premier League left back, but he's a Premier League left back probably about the level of the club he's gone yes. to, Newcastle. Yeah. Luca Dean is an enormous upgrade, and the only time it seemed to not work for Luca Dean was under Rafa Benitez at Everton, where it's not worked for Everton as a whole. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that was that Luca Dean left a week before Rafa Benitez was sacked. So it's a curious one because personally I'd have been keen to hang on to him if they were having those thoughts in, in their head yeah. about maybe making a change at the at the top of the tree. But yeah, fantastic window for them. Brentford, Jonas Lossel and Christian Eriksen are the two very notable players that have come in. I mean, again, you know, if Christian Eriksen can be back to anything like the form that, that we saw for, for Spurs, that would be fantastic. And Jonas Lossel, experienced Premier League goalkeeper. Yeah, I, I touched on this with Kieran and I said, the question I posed to him is, is it one of those signings that might look better on paper than actually is? Are we, are we sure the player that we saw is going to come back to, to the level he was at? And I don't know if we can be completely sure of that, but the only thing is, it's, it's pretty much the only club I think he could have gone to where even if he's even if he's half the player he was it's a great signing for Brentford and and I think that's what they've been lacking they've got a lot of workhorses in that team that will run and run and run and they'll nick the ball and they'll nick results like they did at West Ham like they did against Everton they'll nick results away from teams but then they've some, sometimes lacked that little bit of cutting edge that little bit of quality and I think Ericsson provides that perfectly don't, don't you think either way though whether he has an effect on the pitch he's going to have an effect on the players yeah you know, I think I think that's that's why it makes sense he's going to signing. give them that boost isn't he and I think he'll fit that mould and there is very much a mould of yeah. Brentford which seems to be whether or not people are good people uh, yes. good in the dressing room not just good on the pitch as well moving on then to Brighton four signings for them three of them 
or rather two of them from clubs I've never heard of. I've not heard of any of the players. One of them's come from Porto and Billy Clark comes in from Whitehawk. It's difficult to know with Brighton, is it? If anything, it's it's more a case of, again, perhaps the Arsenal scenario of some of the people they've got rid of. I mean, Jürgen Lacardia, for example, who came in for quite a lot of money in the Chris Hutton era, has now gone and he's gone permanently. Aaron Connolly, who after his kind of emphatic sort of debut against Spurs, mm. never really quite hit the heights and has gone to maybe learn his trade a little bit more under Chris Wilder at Middlesbrough. The one they might not have wanted to lose, but they have done, is uh, Dan Byrne, who, of course, has also moved to, to Newcastle. It's a strange one, isn't it, with, uh, with Brighton, really, because they play such fantastic football. They just seem to lack that cutting edge so often. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a bit like you, Ed. I'm not sure about some of these players they've brought in. I'll be, I'll be brutally honest. But I wasn't sure about McAllister. I didn't know a lot about Moda. I didn't know a lot about a lot of their signings yeah. to it when they brought yeah. them in. So it could be a case of there's a couple of hidden gems there. Um, I think losing Dan Burns a little bit of a blow. However, they've got a good fee for him and I'm sure they're going to reinvest that in the summer. Well, talking about a little bit of a blow, we'll move on to Burnley, who, of course, very early in the window lost Chris Wood after his £25 million exit fee was activated by fellow relegation rivals Newcastle. They also lost a couple of more fringe-orientated players, but on the last day, they brought in Voot Veghorst from Wolfsburg. Now, I've looked at his stats. He has scored the best part of a goal every two games, not only in Holland, but also in Germany. He's one of the starting strikers for the uh, Dutch national team. I can't believe that nobody has picked him up before. And genuinely, he's six foot six, fits the profile of the way Burnley play. Honestly, he would be my outside bet to be the signing of this transfer window. My thing, my thing with Burnley's business is I actually think, if you're just strictly talking business, not signings, it's the best bit of business in the transfer window, hands down. To sell Chris Wood, who and you've said you're, you're not a fan of Ben previously, I don't, I don't think he's, 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 he's going to set the world alight for any team, Chris Wood. He might do well enough to keep Newcastle up, but he's not, gonna, he's, not, he's, you know, he's not a headline sort of player, is he? To sign a player like that for half the price is unbelievable. When I spoke to Kieran again, he said a lot of teams have been looking at Veghorst and had sort of flirted with the idea of getting him but not actually wanted to commit to it and and Burnley have just gone for it and, and I think it's going to pay off it's the, it's the smartest it's so Sean Dyche isn't it it's just genius the, the way he's done it and even if he doesn't come that good it's still worth the punt for the money they've paid if you know what I mean it's, it's almost a, a risk free hit isn't it they absolutely needed a, a replacement mm. for Chris Wood I mean Chris Wood not to, to coat off Chris Wood too much mm. actually because he's got double figures in each of the last four seasons yeah. which you know when you're playing for a team like Burnley and you won't necessarily get the chances is a pretty good return but on paper you, you could argue that they might arguably have signed a, an upgrade but mm. we'll, we'll have to wait and see there were no signings in at Chelsea but Lewis Baker who has been the perennial loan man for, <laughs> for so many years has finally gone to Stoke City for an undisclosed fee my club Crystal Palace the big signing there was John Felipe Mateta jury out on that one to be totally honest with you he was on loan and if I'm t- Telling, telling the God's honest truth, I would have personally said the best part about that was you knew that he wasn't going to be there forever. Um, but now he is. So we'll have to wait and see. And I honestly hope he proves me wrong. We get to Everton, which is a massive, massive one here. We're going to have to speed up through these clubs. Six signings, the most notable of them, of course, Donny van der Beek and Deli Ali, And of course, they brought in Frank Lampard as well. Do you see those two perhaps righting the wrongs of their, of their recent careers, do you think, there at Everton? Yeah, it's a great opportunity for them, isn't it? With a manager coming in, they know they're going to get game time. I think with Delhi, it's it's a case of can Frank instill that confidence in him? 
that Poch could because for, for whatever reason he's just lost he's just lost that yard he's lost yeah. that confidence and he needs someone to come in and, and help him find it and hopefully if the Everton fans get behind him and he gets a couple goals and becomes a focal point in their team we'll see the Deli Alley that we did two three years ago well it's a similar situation with Donny van der Beek as well isn't it yeah. you just feel that with a bit of confidence it could really be a shrewd signing for Everton we will of course have to wait and see Leeds United just a one body in for them Matteo Joseph Fernandez from Espanyol I mean Marcello Bielsa kind of has divided opinion, particularly this year, hasn't he? But Leeds are ultimately pretty clear of the relegation zone now. They've not really been in the conversation particularly for, for some time. I don't think anyone really believed that they would go down, perhaps because they thought there'd be three worst teams. But do you think they needed more bodies, Will? 100%. I, th- I think they, they've, they've complained all season long in, in typical Leeds fashion of making excuses. Oh. Um, they, they've complained all season long about not having the squad depth that they need. A transfer window rolls around and they do absolutely nothing other than the, the one signing they made, sorry. But I, I just think it's sort of, uh, it's a bit ridiculous. I don't think they're. I, I do think they're probably safe, but they're not completely clear of it. It's a bad few results. You've got th- those bottom three teams are fighting like dogs to get out of it. Roy Hodgson at Watford is, you know, he, I'm sure he'll do a good enough job. He'll certainly make a fight out of it. You know, Eddie Howe seems to be doing a good enough job. Dean Smith has somehow dragged Norwich out of a relegation mm. dogfight into, sorry, out of relegation certainty to a dogfight. I wouldn't be so sure if I was Leeds. They needed players and they haven't brought them in. Well, up next is Liverpool. Of course, the one signing for them is uh, Lucas Diaz, or rather Luis Diaz, I apologise, from Porto, who they seem to nick right under the noses of Tottenham Hotspur. I'm sure a lot of people, including Will, clearly, found that found that quite funny. I mean, looking at his stats, looking at his profile, he does seem to fit that mould, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to wonder, though, is that a signing for the future? And is that a sign of what we're going to see maybe with, with Mohamed Salah mm. coming at, towards the end of his contract? Is that a, maybe a hint that he may be on his way? You never know, do you? That's the thing. Well, I mean, you're looking at me as if I do know. I can, <laughs> well, assure, you I, I can assure you that I don't, but I'm certainly keen to see it all unfold. Man City, Julian Alvarez, River Plate. Not quite sure what we're going to expect from him. A couple of big signings on the, on the out, though. Ferran Torres uh, from Barcelona. Uh, or rather has gone to Barcelona after Barcelona secured a loan. Patrick Roberts, I remember you talking about in terms of yeah. Sunderland and a little bit of concern there from you, but obviously it all seems to be a bit up in the air since they've uh, they've lost Lee Johnson at the helm. Leicester City, no transfer signings for them. Manchester United, no transfer signings for them either. Newcastle, five signings. Kieran Trippier, Chris Wood, Bruno Guimaraes, Matt Target and Dan Byrne. Four of those players, very familiar in terms of the Premier League, three of them defenders, Dan Byrne, Matt Target and Kieran Trippier. Is that what they needed? Yeah, 100%. That's 100% what they needed. I think I think the the Gamaris, or I'm not sure on the pronunciation, but he, he seems to be a, a hell of a sign-in for them. I mean, Arsenal were really interested, weren't they? In typical Arsenal fashion, they didn't mm. quite manage to, to secure it. But I mean, it, I, I think I think that's a brilliant sign-in. And a little bit of flair and creativity is absolutely what they've been crying out for. You look how well St Maximan has done there as being the only player who has a little bit of sort of mm. something like that about him. And, and I, I, I think he, he could do brilliant. There, it seems it's a solid, solid window, isn't it? It's what they needed. I don't think it's maybe what we expected. I, I thought Mbappe might be interested, but clearly not. Um, but certainly, it's a solid enough window, I think, to keep them in the Premier League. Okay, quick questions to you: Yes or no question? Five signings in the window. Do Newcastle now stay up? Will yes or no? Yes. 
Yes. Okay, there we go. Two yeses. <laughs> right, fine. That's it. We may as well not bother with the relegation battle at all this season now. Norwich City, no signings for them, which I thought was very interesting. And the same goes for West Ham. Not sure whether or not those are disappointing windows for those clubs or not. Southampton only brought in Willie Caballero. That was on a free transfer, but they have lost a few players from the peripheral ranks. Tottenham have brought in two players. They brought in Rodrigo Bensonker and Dayan Kulusevski. Uh, these these two players, not too much is, is known about them per se. Bensica is perhaps the, the biggest signing of the two. Got 50-odd caps for, for Uruguay um, and, and also has won seven trophies at Juventus. Kulisevsky is actually, bizarrely, he's Swedish but moved when he was 15. Uh, to go to to Italy. So I'm not quite sure what we're going to get out, out of those two, but do you think they're starting to move in the direction that Conte wants them to? Yeah, I mean, Bentacur maybe isn't the player he was a couple of years ago at, where he was really setting the world alight, but look, clearly Conte has a vision. These are two players he's definitely earmarked. You can't say that, I can't get the impression that Daniel Levy has picked these out. <laughs> it's very, very coincidental that they come from Juventus, you know, in Italy. So I think we'll see in the summer maybe more with, with Conte what, what the business is and, and where Spurs are going with that. And the last two clubs, Watford, five signings for them. No real surprises there as they're in the relegation battle. Wolverhampton Wanderers, three signings for them. Two clubs with, with opposing fortunes, really, aren't they? Watford very much down there and have now appointed Roy Hodgson to try and get them out of it. Whereas Wolves, quietly slow burning away under Bruno Large, appear to have uh, been a, a good managerial signing, certainly. Yeah, I think it is. And I, I do think Wolves have probably maybe sold themselves a bit short in this window and that they probably could have charged a bit further up the table with with a couple of extra bodies, especially losing Adama Traore to Barcelona. I think they, they definitely could have done another body. But look, I mean, I didn't think Lage was a good appointment at the start of the season. He clearly knows what he's doing. So I, I think they'll be all right. Well, it's rinse and repeat for Wolves. Up next, though, it's our unpopular opinion where we talk about one of the least popular opinions in this studio. And this week, it's mine. You're listening to The Football Show on River Radio. We're now down to our final feature of the evening as we begin our studio debate section, Unpopular Opinion. This will see one of us submit a footballing thought that goes against the grain for many people before attempting to justify it whilst under fire from the other two panellists. So far this year, we've argued over whether Stephen Gerrard has already surpassed the achievements of his predecessor, Dean Smith, at Aston Villa, and who of Pep Guardiola and Arsene Wenger did a better job in the Premier League. This week, as I say, it's my turn to offer up a subject and I have turned to the national team initially for inspiration, but then changed my mind because instead my unpopular opinion is thus. I think that Roy Hodgson is a better appointment for Watford than Frank Lampard is for Everton. Just gauging wow. the reactions of those in front of me, Will looks like he's genuinely willing and ready to walk out of the studio at any moment just to compose himself. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, 100%. But to be fair, you look like that most of the yeah, time. Yeah, so that's it's, true, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to gauge whether or not that's actually yes. even made a dent, that opinion. Um, <laughs> ben, I'll start with yourself. How out there do you feel that is? Do you do you back me or sack me? Well, I, I like going against whatever Will has to say. Uh, yeah, good point. Yeah. Fair enough. To be honest, I, I, actually, I actually agree with you, Ed. I do. I, I believe that Frank Lampard, and I said it a couple of weeks ago, I think the jury's still out on him as a manager. You can sigh, but listen to what I've got to say. He'd done very well with a very good derby team with young players that have gone on to clearly be very good players, right? They should have got the playoffs. They got the playoffs. He went to Chelsea, had a good first season, 
spent a lot of money in the second season and ultimately got sacked. And with the same group of players, Thomas Tuchel come in and won the Champions League. So at the moment, I'm not too convinced on Frank Lampard. And like you said, Roy Hodgson, Mr. Reliable in the Premier League. He doesn't do a bad job, does a great job at Palace. So... I, I love that this is my unpopular opinion, but Ben's just fighting my corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's, 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 I, I sense if there's going to be a challenge to this, it's going to come from you. We're running out of time rapidly. What have you got for me? Come I on, mean, it's, I, I want to address what Ben just said about disagreeing with me. Loved, adored, but never ignored. That's what people say about me. So, you know, it's, it's typical of Ben, really. Uh, two problems with it, really, mate, to be honest, straight off the bat. Uh, I, I first, first of all, think that the, the sort of analogy on, on Frank Lampard is way too harsh. In that uh, I know. You, right, so that wasn't my analogy, that was Ben's analogy. No, ben, the, the reason you're saying it about Roy Hodgson is not only not because just not just because Roy Hodgson's a good manager, but arguably you probably don't think Frank Lampard's an incredible appointment for Everton either. No, no, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I yeah. don't. I don't think he's an incredible appointment. No. Right. So, but so, I, but I think it's very easy to forget what Frank Lampard did at Chelsea. It's, it's a classic, classic, classic example of football fans having an incredibly short memory. Everyone was singing his praises at the end of the first season when he brought all these youth players through. Mason Mount, now first team regular, of course, for Chelsea. He was brought through by Frank Lampard. So many of that team. Moulded by Frank Lampard. That's one. I mean, um, mm. I, would, I would. The thing is, right, and herein, herein lies my, you know, a bone of contention rather than it's, it's the heart of the problem rather than the root of it. First and foremost, you know, Frank Lampard is, is heralded as bringing through these, these players. Mason Mount, I can't dispute that. But there was this rather sort of peculiar scenario with Antonio Rudiger who has proven himself now to be pretty much the best defender in the Premier League or among them, where Antonio Rudiger was never playing. And yet, irrespective of that, Chelsea were conceding goals. Mm. Vicayo Tomori, one of the young players that Lampard had at Derby and quote-unquote brought through, same thing. He seemed to have this scenario whereby he was kind of falling out with players. But that's not really the point yeah, that, okay. that, that ultimately I wanted to address. The thing for me, I don't think, I don't have it in for Frank Lampard. I don't think that he matches Roy Hodgson as an appointment because I don't think he's the right fit for that particular job. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think there are many people who are the right yeah, fit no, for that particular job yeah. because personally, the one person I would want in that job and he's not available is someone like Antonio Conte because yeah. I think Mashiri, who is the owner, has to almost come to terms with the fact that his Everton team needs a rebuild because of the £700 million pounds yeah, he yeah, spent on it. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very bitter pill to swallow. But you need somebody who's got the clout and authority to come in and say, right, I'm not having him. I'm not having him as a player. This is the style I want to play. He's not going to do what I want. And have the clout to get rid of those players okay. and actually create a philosophy. Look I, look, I take that, right? But in the, at the same time, if you'd have told any Chelsea fan or any Chelsea member of the board even that Chelsea would have made the top four following a transfer embargo with the squad they had, it was, it was inconceivable. People did not think Chelsea would get in the top four the year that they did and they did right yeah. and that's the job that Frank Lampard is you're just talking but about had you told had you told anyone that as soon as you sat Frank Lampard you'd win the Champions League but with the right. squad yeah, that this, he this, has this is becoming a different argument though isn't it this is becoming about Tuchel and, and, the, and the faltering job he did at Chelsea which don't get me wrong I recognise and it, it, it what perhaps wasn't he, he didn't kick on as he could have done but that, that job of laying a foundation was, was very good at Chelsea and it laid the foundation for Tuchel to go on and do what he did I, th- I don't think there's there's I, I, no? I was gonna, I've got a question for you, Will, okay? okay? Does Frank Lampard do the job that Roy Hodgson did at Crystal Palace, the, do, the job that Roy Hodgson did at so West Brom? Are you saying does, if he, does if he, he gets does those he do roles? That, does, if, you know, if he had the job then, does he do the same yeah, job? Yeah, but, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, Roy Hodgson's got about 800 years' experience well, in football. Well, there we go. So. That's, that's the no, point but, Ed's no, trying but, to make. One point, just, just, to, just to finish on, I was just saying about Chelsea laying the foundations. Everton need, that, need someone to do that. They need someone to lay foundations. 
get get players in cleverly, get players working that are already there, like he did at Chelsea, and that's exactly what Frank Lampard should do. Roy Hodgson, I think there's a little bit of recency bias and a little bit of team bias from yourself, that's a, just, that's just in terms good, of how good a manager he is. That's a... No, I don't think there is. And herein lies the thing, you see, because the football won't be good to watch at Watford. But for me, they shouldn't have sacked Cisco when they did. Mm. But I think ultimately, Cisco was probably always going to go this year. I think that was just going to be on the cards for him. And I think they should have appointed Roy Hodgson when they appointed Claudio Ranieri. Yeah, okay. Because ultimately, the first thing that you want to do is stay in the Premier League. And they've appointed somebody who who has done that pretty remarkably with not one, not two, but three different teams. And his speciality is defending. And that is where Watford are struggling. It's not because I think that Frank Lampard's a bad manager. Mm-hmm. I think he would... He was right not to take the Norwich job because I think that would have ended in relegation within the space of about six months um, and, and was likely to for most coaches. I think the best job he could have realistically got, bizarrely, would, would have been something like the Aston Villa job, but they weren't <laughs> going to go down. You know, that much was clear, but they needed some tweaking and they needed refreshing. And Everton doesn't need refreshing. Everton needs wholesale, massive changes. And I think as soon as there is the sign of some turbulence, what will get thrown in his face through no point of his own or no fault of his own, because it's an indelible characteristic as soon as you appoint him, is people will say, well, he's out of his depth. He hasn't got the experience and he's not gone and earned those earned those miles anyway, really. I think he got the Chelsea job based on the fact he was a, a popular appointment at what was going to be a very difficult time. Um, but he'd only done a season at Derby. I th- all I will say is, I think, you know, you look at Lampard's record and, and I completely subscribe to what Jamie Carragher said. And that is, I'd like to have seen Frank Lampard get that job on merit in 10 years time. Mm-hmm. And I just think that this job is a very difficult one. You look at the managers who come before him and not done it, established managers who've, who've really, you know, done stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think he's going to struggle. I think you're right, probably. I mean, not, not I don't think you're right in that sense. I can understand, <laughs> I can understand where you're coming from but is what I'm trying to say. But all I will say is it's not his fault he got those jobs. He got. He, it's not his fault he got off those well, jobs. Well, he did apply for them. Ta- so. He was never going to turn them down, though, was he, realistically? Uh, anyway, rapidly running out of time. But, well, uh, there we go. It's <laughs> the end of the show. Thank you both so much. Thank you for listening at home as well. It's been a great show, and we look forward